You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 271 for August 23rd, 2023. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we continue our discussion about proposals. So be sure to listen to part one on episode 270 because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. Welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me today is Andrew with his coffee mug in California. What's up, y'all? It's nice to be back. (laughs) Heather's back in the kitchen, also in California. (laughs) With my coffee mug. (laughs) With your coffee mug. And we've also got Doug in Scotland, presumably with like tea or something. (laughs) No, man, I I, I don't do that. I don't mess mess with tea. I don't mess with coffee. What? You know. Only hard drugs for me. Only hard drugs. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, as you may assume, if you're listening to the audio of this, which I'm, I'm assuming you are because our numbers on YouTube are not like super high, but we are recording video except for Doug. He stays mysterious for, you know, plausible deniability and anonymity, but uh, that's a tough word to say. Anyway. We are on video and we are publishing these to the Archaeology Podcast Network YouTube channel. So if you want to see a relatively unedited version of this, although I've I've come up with a way to possibly get the video and the audio edited at the same time. So these might get a little bit more cleaned up on the YouTube side of things. But either way, hopefully we, uh, you know, don't make too many mistakes because I'm probably not doing that for this episode, but we'll see. So last week, if you missed it. We discussed proposals, episode 271. Go check that out. We'll link to it in the show notes. But we had so much to talk about that we only got through a little over half of our bullet points of the things we actually wanted to talk about. So it'll be fun to, you know, continue this conversation because there was so much more to talk about, so many more things we wanted to say. And we're just going to kick that off right now. So, I mean, I've got the first bullet point up here, but is there anything... Just maybe from Andrew, I know you listened to the episode because you weren't on mm-hmm. uh, last week because you were on a, a, a photo shoot, probably, or some sort of talent yeah. scouting trip in Hawaii or something. I the don't really calendar know. has to come out at some point. So yes. I got to get ready for that, <laughs> you know. Stuff. Right, right, right. <laughs> uh, but do either of you guys have, have any initial comments just maybe off of, off of last week's episode or we just want to head right into it? <laughs> Sure. I just have a a quick comment to say I listened to the episode yesterday and I thought it was great. This is the kind of episode that I think the CRM podcast is made for. You know, the the what is the proposal thing that last episode, I'm definitely going to have my students listen to because it kind of takes the wool off your eyes. It's like this is the why of the project. You know, this is everything boils down to this. It answers so many questions like, why are we getting paid so little? 
You know, why is this project doing this? Hey, we found this thing. Why don't we move over here? Why don't we look at that other hillside? It's it's like, hey, man, look at the proposal. The proposal is your map to what you must do. So I, I just thought it was great. Heather, any comments off of last week or things you want to start with? No, no, I think we'll cover it in this in this episode. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And, and Doug, Doug's muted. I assume if he had something to say, he wouldn't be, but I can't see him. So I don't know, Doug. <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm good. All right. All right. So one of the things we didn't really get to talk about, and this is the first point we have from last week, was what do you do if you when you lose a proposal? We, I mean, we kind of touched on it a little bit, you know, going back to the agency and, and, and figuring out why you lost the proposal. If they'll tell you that, if it's a private company, they might not tell you that, but if it's an agency, they likely will. But what can we do to... I don't know, strengthen our proposals for next time or or just learn from that experience. And Heather, as anybody who's written proposals, you've probably lost more than you've won. That's just yeah. how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't you know, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I actually. Right, yeah. right. I mean, you, you, you all, I think I'm proud to say I have a pretty good win rate, but you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course you're going to lose. And in fact, we talked about it the last time. And sometimes it boggles your mind that you lose uh, I mean, we were just, I said, an example of the last episode is that I lost because my bid was too low. That was so frustrating yeah. because the, you know, the agency said, well, <laughs> we think that you didn't have a grasp on, you know, what the actual task was because you're, because you're, you know, your bid was so low. And I was, they said, you're, you know, your, yeah. your scope was great. The, the proposal was great. It was well thought out, but you were too low. So we don't think you truly know what it takes to get this, to make this happen. I'm like, well, that's only because you've been trained by people who have been, I was scamming you, but you've been trained by people that have elevated the price to a point. They're working with outdated. I think a lot of, a lot of CRM firms are working with outdated strategies, right? And they're not using technologies. Mm-hmm. Now, we did talk about this in the last episode, and that is sometimes, you know, passing those efficiencies that you have developed over time is a good way of, you know, kind of you meet in the middle ground. I, I don't think you stay with the same price necessarily because you do need to be competitive in the market. But I think that having, you know, you've worked hard to create and develop these efficiencies that I think somewhere in the middle, right? Bringing your mm-hmm. price down enough so that you still, you have some more room, you can pay people more and, and whatnot. But I don't think you should stay at the same price necessarily because eventually you're, you are going to be worked out of the market. I mean, it's so, right. but that was really, it was frustrating. It was a learning experience. One aspect that I learned there is that you have to really know the agencies that you're proposing for. You have to know what it is sure. that they sure. are looking for, what their little idiosyncrasies are. You also have to understand sometimes it's not even worth bidding on a project because you know that they have their shoe in company that they want to use. And in fact, that's what I yeah. think really happened there. I was told that we were too low. They couldn't criticize anything else about our proposal, but that's what they say is that we were too low. I think it's because... They had already decided who they were going to hire, but they had to put the bid out. And so that was their excuse for not for not selecting us because the, the, the company that got hired, it's the same company they work for over and over again. And we could talk about that as far as when do you decide sure. to bid 
And when do you decide to decline? Well, one of the things that really frustrates me about all that is I wish... I wish agencies, honestly, I don't know why there's so much cloak and dagger, to be honest with you. It's a, especially with the public agencies, right? Like BLM, Forest Service, some of the others, military, stuff like that. I mean, if there is a threshold, a low and a high, I mean, publish it with the requirements. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. literally, if you're over this, we're not going to give it to you. If you're under this, we don't think you can do it. But if you can, justify why you think you can, right? And, I do. and it's just like, I do, why? Some do. You're right. Some do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but more often than not, they don't. And and you yeah. just kind of have to guess that you're that yeah, you're man. that you're in line with everybody else and that you're not either either blowing it out or you're not charging enough. Right. So. Right. Anyway, I just wish they would do that. But I think my big feedback from losing proposals is, you know, I mean, if you if you win a lot, you might take this a little differently. But <laughs> if you're like most small companies just starting out and you're you know, you're winning 10 percent of the proposals that you write, literally don't let it don't let it bother you learn from it, yes. move on and write yes. the next one. You know what I mean? Yes. And, yeah. and also be, be careful about writing too many at the same time, because I mean, you might win more than one and then you're really in trouble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, for small companies. That was going to be my question. Have you guys ever been surprised when you won, you know, when you were sort of planning to not, you're like, this ain't going to work. And then you're like, Oh, Oh, whoa! I guess we're doing this. Has, has that happened no. to you guys? No, of course not, because that's how proposal writing works. You're like, so damn right, I won that project. Exactly, guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, we. Had, I, I, I can just yeah, except right. for the real world. <laughs> I can, I can just yeah. distinctly remember a few times where I've sat back and like, oh my goodness, we won. Now what do we do? Yeah, it's yeah. Right. There are times where you bid and you're doing it for the exercise of it for the practice of it, for learning, mm-hmm. actually, sometimes you're, you know, you're putting out the hook to get an idea for the next time. How are you going to strategize? Right. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, you're not going to win a proposal right. or you expect, you don't expect to win a proposal, but you're learning about the agency because you want to win the propo- proposals in the future. And so you're kind of just practicing with that agency. And, and so when you win, there have been a couple of mm-hmm. times we win and we're like, Oh boy, you know, because that's your, especially if you've never worked with them before, this is your one opportunity to really show what you got. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, and that pressure is a little, you know, unnerving sometimes because you feel like you have one chance to, to really knock it out of the park or you don't get a chance with the agency again. So, right. Yeah. I do have one, you know, being all serious that, uh, that we did win. That was, that was a little bit shocking and it was the biggest project my company. Well, I guess now it's the second biggest project my company has ever done, but it was when I was this, a sub for another big company in Southern California that won that five-year IDIQ. And the, the only thing I really got out of that, they did a bunch of small stuff after this, but we won back to back that had to be basically done in the same year, a 15,000 acre survey in El Centro, California, followed immediately by a 30,000 acre survey at China Lake Naval Weapons Center. And like I said, I'm a small company. Usually I've got one, maybe you know, a few other people, but I had to have like eight people and the vehicles. And I went from like zero to a thousand percent in a very short period of time. I mean, I had to get a loan initially to cover payroll. I, I just didn't have the money in the bank. And then, you know, I worked with the company to basically let me invoice them so I could just turn right around and give it to my employees uh, as per diem and, and payroll. And it was a little stressful, but winning those two back to back was, I knew, I knew we had a good chance of getting something, but I didn't know it's going to be that big. You know what I mean? That was a tough year. Right. (laughs) Right. Sure. I would say in my experience, 
there's very little correlation for the amount of work you put into a bid and the ones you actually win or lose in the Mm -hmm. sense of like, there'll be ones where you're like, yes, you spent days. You thought it was the most perfect one. No, don't get it. There's other ones where you sort of toss in that boilerplate and you're like, yeah, I mean, it's not bad. So I'd say like, I've never had one of those like sort of Hail Mary, like, oh, we have two hours to do this. Let's just throw something together. It's complete crap. Usually we we don't do that last minute stuff. Like if we're not going to be able to do a good proposal, we don't usually do the Hail Mary because it, it just it doesn't usually work. Yeah. And so usually don't do that. So but again, there's like we, we put in I'd say if we're gonna do a proposal, we'll do a decent proposal. But like on that scale of like decent to like, oh man, this is the most perfect proposal I've ever put in, there's no correlation of like, you know, our win loss ratio on like that. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's not quite that like We've put in crap ones and they're surprised when we get it. There's ones that we put in that we're like, oh, it'd be nice if we get it. And then we get it. And that's great. (laughs) And there's others that we're like, oh, yes, we should definitely get this. We did so much and we don't. But that's not quite that sort of that same level that you guys are discussing. Right. No, that was the base of my question, just because I've had those kind of experiences in proposals in the academic world, you know, where you do it and you do your due diligence, you do it well, but you're like, I got like an 11% chance of getting this, you know, and then you put your resources kind of somewhere else. And then you have to backtrack. You're like, whoa, 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 wait, we have to, no, we do have an extra two weeks over here or, you know, whatever it may be. So I like that sort of behind the scenes story of, you know, sometimes, sometimes you lose when you think you're going to win and win when you think you're going to lose. And sometimes you just, I mean, you usually don't know the the odds going in as well. Mm-hmm. So you don't know who's going to be bidding and how many proposals. And sometimes you find that out when they let you know. They're like, oh, yeah, we had 25 people and you <laughs> were like number 23 or two. Right. The two is the second is the worst. Or, yeah, you know, we weird. had two and you're number two, which also stings a lot as well. But, yeah, it's really sometimes hard to guess those odds Unless you know, you know it really well as Heather was talking about, and you get to really know whoever's putting out that tender, and then you start to get a feel of what they like and who's likely to get it. But for the most part, yeah, sometimes you just, I've gotten projects where they're like, well, we put out a tender and you're the only one that put in a a usable tender, so you got it. And that's (laughs) always a nice feeling as well. Yeah, I, I agree with Doug. There is little correlation between what you win and the effort you put into it, typically. But right now we're trying to talk about agency bids where they really do have to look at the various you know, proposals that they get. And they have to have a certain amount of proposals typically that come in. Sometimes they don't have enough that come in and they have to reissue the RFP. Then there's also the proposals that you do where you have a very good client relationship. And you're churning out these proposals and you're winning them. And sometimes that's the smaller work, but that's your bread and butter that keeps you going while, you know, you're waiting for those bigger opportunities. So those ones where you have a really good relationship with the, with the client, you know, you don't mess with the formula that you have and those are quick. And the effort that you put into the proposal is a lot less than these other larger proposals. So, and they're easier to win. With that, let's take a break and uh, we'll come back and, and keep talking about this on the other side. Back in a minute. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks. Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. 
Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Welcome back to episode 271 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we are continuing our discussion on proposals from episode 270. So again, if you haven't heard that, go take a listen. It's pretty good. Awesome information. And Andrew, you started off by telling us, having your students listen to this, it really is good information. And I think you mentioned, I can't remember if it was on this recording or not, that, you know, as a professor, you haven't had a chance to write a lot of the proposals that we're talking about. But it made me think, grant writing, that's not a whole lot different. And you've probably written tons of those. <laughs> no, it's, it's hilariously similar. Like, uh, And I have done some proposals, too, but again, not in the super organized CRM way, as you guys, you guys sure. know what I mean, you know, like in that yeah, sort yeah. of. Uh, fill in the blank. Yeah. Yeah. Extremely structured way. But uh, it's all the same. It's all these basic things like know your audience, you know, that you have to Mm -hmm. know the audience uh, of the grant. I was thinking of one. I swear there was this one grant. It should have been called. We give Andrew Kinkella money grant because it was exactly what I do. Right. I was like, oh, I'm going to get this. And just like you guys said, I put a lot of work into it. I tried really hard and I didn't get it. And I was like, (laughs) <laughs> what? What did I not do? You know, like it, it, I was shocked. But then on the other side, there was this other grant where I was like, ah, oh, dude, I got like, again, you know, 14% chance. And then I, <laughs> I put it in and I got it, you know, surprisingly. So although the output is different being it, you know, a grant or a proposal, the, the, the setup's yeah. the same, the knowledge of audience is the same, the, Doing your own due diligence is the same, so it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a very similar ride, you know, on uh, both of those things. We'll probably have you know some listeners who are maybe in grad school, maybe get involved in that sort of um, aspect of of doing grant writing, and then move on into CRM. Or as the way is going with academia, probably half of them are going to have to end up in CRM anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it's one thing to sort of think about is a uh, Andrew has definitely talked about like it is fairly similar. I'd say the biggest difference, and this is huge and key, is that when you're doing uh, and we discussed this earlier, and it's, it's sort of a running theme about like you want to be inventive, but you don't want to be too inventive. Whereas in academic right. grant writing, you basically need to come up with um, your own sort of proposal. And there's a much narrower range that you have when you're doing CRM. And it'll depend on the funder as well. Some are like, yes, definitely. We'd like this creativeness. And some are like, nope, I've told you exactly what I want. I want 
these many uh, trenches or this much area surveyed this way, if you deviate even like a millisecond off of that timing I've given you, we're throwing away your proposal. So it's a, it tends to be a lot tighter in the range of what you can do. I've seen this happen. I think it could be a, a hard transition for some people who've gone for writing, pro, you know, with grants and for academia, there, there'll usually be some sort of guidelines and you sort of have to be there, but you're, you're basically writing a whole new project from scratch and you have a much higher level of control. And I've seen a lot of people run into a lot of trouble. There was definitely recently one of the few cases with the uh, CIFA, which is the UK's sort of equivalent to RPA, actually kicking someone out because basically they, they used, they treated a commercial project like their own personal research project and charge their client for it for things that they weren't supposed to be doing and they got complained against and then they did it again and got kicked out but yeah there's a that's i'd say the biggest difference is a lot of it is almost exactly the same you have to have a budget you have to have timings you have to have why we're doing this everything's very similar, maybe slightly different wording, different, slightly different headings, but very similar. But the biggest difference, I would say, is it's much narrower in the range of what you can do in most cases. Occasionally, you do get a client who's just like, yeah, here's some money. Do make magic happen. But that rarely happens. I would say probably 60 to 70% of the proposals that I write, the client's trusting that I know what needs to happen. So I would say the, even more than that, I would say maybe 70 or 75%. I think only 25%, at least for me, of the proposals. Now, of course, you know, Doug, you're, you're working, you're not working in the U.S., but so it might be different, but, you know, they're relying on us to be the experts and to know what is required. There's a lot of pushback. It happens a lot on a regular basis, actually. And maybe that's because I work more with private clients, but there is a lot of pushback. They're like, exactly why do I have to do this? And I enjoy those questions because it allows you, and I think this you know, one good point to bring up, it allows you the opportunity to create a relationship with your client or your prospective client. So you, know, you have to tread lightly, but there are good clients and, and good business people are looking at the bottom line. Exactly what do I have to do? And they are very skeptical. I've come across a lot of clients that are very skeptical that really is this something we really need to do? Um, because there are a lot of, there's, I can think of several companies right now in our area that that really you know create scenarios for clients that are not really necessary, where they're having them do work that they really don't mm-hmm. need to have them do. So I think that you know, it's an opportunity as a professional to create a relationship when you get a question from a client. And that is something that I think is also something we should talk about is, you know, sometimes it's not just you submit the proposal and then you either get a yes or a no. Sometimes there is this liminal state in between where you're, you're interviewing. Sometimes there's formal interview process. Sometimes there is a back and forth with the client because they're really trying to figure out it. Wow. Like I was thinking it was going to cost 20,000 and you came back with a hundred thousand dollar bid. <laughs> and maybe this is something I need to do, but is it really something I need to do? And so, you know, having those conversations yeah. are, are difficult because you have to know what you're talking about. And you also have to be able to communicate in a layman's term, but it is a really good opportunity to develop a relationship with the, with the client. I have a few more things to say, but I'll leave it open to everybody else. 
Yeah, I mean, you're you're not wrong, especially if you're not dealing with an agency, right? Agencies mm-hmm. usually have a pretty good handle, I think, on what it might cost or what the effort will be for a certain area. You know, they're they're really into it. They they've done lots of these, or they they have a historical backlog to look at. But you know, especially in places like California, where there's a lot of you know just a lot of private archaeology going on because of the laws and, and regulations there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you might be dealing with somebody that's never had to do a cultural resources assessment before, or you know has very little experience with it. And again, what Andrew said, and I think what you've also said, Heather, is is looking, knowing your audience, right? And if you, mm-hmm. if your audience is some small time developer, you know, don't talk to them like they're a BLM archaeologist, right? Talk to them right. like, like they possibly don't know what they're talking about and be like, hey, so I'll send you this proposal. But just so you know, this is probably the things that are going to mm-hmm. have to be done. And, you know, are you guys... You know, are you guys ready for this? I actually had that happen here in, uh, well, here, not in Reno, but in Reno. I don't know actually how this guy even found me. I think he found me on LinkedIn or something like that. But it was really a small project. He'd never had to do anything before. And the only reason they had to have a cultural resources assessment on this one spot of private land was because a couple of streams came down the hill and went right across the property. And those streams were under Army Corps regulation. So because of that Army Corps influence, they had to have a cultural resources assessment yeah. done. So, you know, I did a lit search and 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 sent them a proposal. And I don't even think they were looking at anybody else, to be honest. But I, I had to yeah. prep him ahead of time for what this is going to be. You know, it, it turns out it wasn't that expensive in the grand scheme of things, but it's helpful to give them a little bit of a hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Doug. Yeah, I would say, um, and this is just sort of a, a general life thing, but it, it ties in well, is it, it's also not necessarily just knowing your audience, but asking your audience what they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you can really insult people quite quickly by either assuming they know what you're talking about mm-hmm. or assuming they don't know it what does. you're talking about. <laughs> right. Yeah, I usually go with a, a solid like, please stop me if I'm I'm talking or I ask a sort of a series of like, leading questions of like, okay, so have you done this before? You know, Mm -hmm. how many projects is this something, you know, get a little bit of a thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll just be honest. I'll say, you know, I'm going to go over this. I don't want to like belittle you, um, but I also want us to miscommunicate. So uh, apologies if anything happens, but, and I go over stuff with people and I say, you know, try to figure out their level there. But I, I'd say if anyone's listening to this, do not assume, a level of understanding and i'd also say like don't assume a level of understanding of fellow archaeologists but they're the ones who are going to definitely be the most testy mm-hmm. if you if they don't know something they will definitely feel hurt and insulted uh, they're the most easiest to insult I, I find yeah all right well we are you know, three or four minutes from the end of this segment. But I think let's take a break now because we can wrap this whole thing up with uh, a discussion of what to do after you win the proposal and then kind of wrapping up the project and, and what all that means on the other side of this. So we'll do all that in one segment when we get back, back in a minute. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Welcome back to the third and final segment of episode 271 for the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And it's Proposals Part 2. And now we're going to talk about the fun part. What happens when you win a proposal? 
what do you do? What does that actually mean? What, who do you have to communicate with? What do, what kind of stuff do you have to put into motion? You know, and really, I mean, this all depends on probably two primary major factors. A, how big is the project you just won? And B, how big is your company, right? Because if mm-hmm. you want a big project and you can just like roll into this because you guys are planning on it, you got people coming off another one, there's a lot of logistics to take place. If you're a smaller company and maybe you're not doing a lot of work, then it might be okay to do this and 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 not have too much of a disruption. But still, like myself, like I mentioned last time, I mean, those big projects I had for the Navy, I mean, I really had to put a lot of stuff into place. Like I said, I had I had to get a loan. I actually, that's when I bought my Tacoma because I, I knew I was going to have to rent vehicles, but I also knew I was I was ready for a company vehicle. So, you know, I, I bought that to not have another rental, but to have an asset. And then I still had to rent two other vehicles for the project. So, and I had to rent them for, you know, like 10 months. <laughs> that ends up getting really expensive. If, if I had the space to store other vehicles, I probably should have just bought another one, but I really didn't. So, you know, I'm not, a, I don't have a huge office. I'm not, I'm not a huge company. So anyway, that's some of the things to think about and just the logistics of the whole thing, which kind of is my favorite part. I love logistics. Mm-hmm. I love figuring out the pieces and where things go. It's kind of my sweet spot, you know, project management, that side of things. Uh, and it's really fun. If that's not your sweet spot, then you need to hire somebody who it is for, because if you don't get the logistics right, yeah. you're really going to mess this up. So, okay. yeah, um, well, this actually sort of ties back into our first uh, first bit with uh, when Heather was talking about, like, what projects you shouldn't go for, because, you yeah. know, it always sucks to not get a project. But, you know, sometimes winning sucks as well. And I think part of that decision is when you're thinking about this, you should actually be thinking about, I, I know we say, and in theory, you should be thinking about winning when you're putting together your proposal and where everything happens. But I, I find this, especially with a lot of smaller organizations, they don't think strategically about that. So, you know, one of the things, especially if you're deciding what to go for, is like, when are the start dates? And mm-hmm. when do things are likely going to roll? Or what sometimes happens is there are not really hard start dates. They'll let you know when they're partially through or they're ready mm-hmm. to be stripping some soil or something like that. And that's when they're going to call you in to do monitoring or something like that. And you have no control and you maybe have like a week's notice or like, hey, want to stop by tomorrow sort of notice, <laughs> which always sucks and is always mm-hmm. fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think in terms of like once you've won, you should actually have been planning. To, I, I know it sounds weird. And in theory, you, you are planning by putting in a, a proposal to win, but actually you should really plan before you even put in that proposal, what happens if you win and you should be timetabling your resources and thinking about what's going to be coming down the pipeline and when, because no matter what you do and how well you plan, six things are always going to happen on that one week. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think this is really important for people to understand, specifically for those that are working in the field and may, you know, may they don't have a potential of writing a proposal, at least this at this point in their career. But this is why CRM is rife with last minute requests. This is why people are, you know, constantly calling you last minute because you win the proposal. It's not like you win the proposal. Okay, now we're, we start right away. It doesn't work that way. A lot of times the clients win the proposal, but there's a lot of things that the agencies, at least in, in California, agencies have. So if you're working with a client where they're the applicant and the, your client is the applicant, not the agency, even with an agency, but more so when the applicant is the, is the client, there are so many things they have no control over. Permits, 
things that they may not have even thought of, things that the agencies weren't all that organized and they didn't think of. And now nothing can happen until they get a grading permit or other other types of permits. And so it's not just as simple. Now, when you're doing an investigation, it's a little different. But when it comes to monitoring and any kind of mitigation work that you proposed on, that is where you don't really have a whole lot of control. And unfortunately, that's why we we come up with a lot of last minute requests because our clients don't have control or maybe they're not that organized and they're like, save the day, please. You know, I think the first thing <laughs> that I do, it all depends on whether or not it's a mitigation effort or it's an, an investigation effort. Investigation effort, you do have a lot more control and we have set up task strategies that we know as soon as I tell our team we've won this project, they know we're do this, 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 this. It's, it is, in fact, we've created a Trello card. We have everything set up so everybody knows it's this kind of project. These are the things that need to happen. There's no, not even any thought about it. Sometimes they'll ask because there's certain things. Sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But for the most part, having a organized management task list is really essential to doing things in an efficient way. I've just got to echo that. I'm so glad to hear you guys use something like Trello that is not only easy to organize, but it's also something that can be shared easily enough and it's free. I mean, it can, you can pay for it. And we actually do for the APN for several things that we need to do, but for, for like 99% of what you need to do, it's a free, can be like a light project management tool. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And there's project management software out there, but for certain size projects, especially if you're running concurrent projects all the time, I mean, you need this open communication between you and the people that are running it, the people that are paying for it, the, you know, everything. And if you don't have, it goes back to logistics. If you don't have that, this thing can go sideways real fast if you're holding yeah. on to information and then all of a sudden maybe you can't provide that information and you know, where's that housed? Where is that information that we need? You know, I don't know how many times I've been on a project where in the first week, we still don't know what the agency defines as a site because the company just sent us out there. You know, this is before I owned my company without really giving us any briefing information on what we're actually doing out there right. and looking. We just start walking and recording stuff and we have no definitions <laughs> and there's no yeah. place we can look to find them. So, yeah, go ahead. That I would say is, you know, that's a really good point. You know, being organized out the gate is is essential to making sure that you don't have something called scope creep, right? I think a lot of people have, you know, we, we already yeah. talked a little bit about that. The one way that you avoid scope creep is to make sure that you have a very specific and well-written proposal that has assumptions that you know from your own personal experience where things can go sideways where misunderstandings could happen, where you wrote you were going to do this and actually your language isn't tight enough that it could be understood that it's included in your proposal. So having the assumptions first is your step, mm -hmm. first step to avoiding scope creep. The second thing is, is to really understanding, understanding what your effort is so that you're able to identify tasks that are coming up that the client is asking for that are outside of the scope and can really eat up your budget very quickly. And then the other thing is putting a good team in there that knows how to make things happen. I mean, and, and you have to, you have to show people how to make things happen. You can't just throw people into the field and say, get this done. Like you have to have parameters <laughs> and you can't as a project manager, be afraid to give those parameters. You have to say like, it needs to get done in this time. 
usually what I do is I anticipate it, anticipate. I, you know, one of the things I think we talked about this, when you're putting together an investigation, you have to look like many times it's far away from where you are. So you can't go and put boots on the ground and and see what you're dealing with. But you have to go on Google Earth. You have to look at the topo maps. Going on Google Earth isn't good enough. Looking at the topo maps, knowing what the terrain is going to be like, so you know how quickly people are going to be able to get through the area. Those things are really important because, you know, I've learned the hard way where I've said, oh, guys, this is an easy project. And they get out in the into the project. And not only do you have this undulating right terrain, but you have poison oak, right? So there's all different ways that, yeah. that you can anticipate what it's going to be like out there. But let's say you did perfectly and you really had a good understanding of what your terrain and what the environment is like, you know, giving your crew say, this is what I'm expecting it's going to take. This is what we've budgeted for so that they have some parameters. Otherwise you're just throwing them in there and you're not allowing them to be successful out in the field. Mm-hmm. So just a slight step back on like planning and resourcing and, and what Heather was going on about how we don't always know when projects are going to happen and uh, what is actually happening in that project. Sometimes you're sent mm-hmm. out into the field with, with no idea because it's not a lot of communication. And I have to say this is a, I think one of the biggest weaknesses I see in CRM anywhere in the world is there's, there's a lack of communication and a lot of lack of communication all, all throughout. So you, you have, I, I don't think people have gotten until you actually are are dealing with project management. Most of say techs don't understand that actually like, it's not that, that people are trying to screw you over with, you know, we might have work next week. We might not. And it feels like you're being strung along. That's literally because you don't know what's going to happen next week. I've been on projects where they, well, it was uh, one of the projects, the big one uh, was the border fence one where they didn't actually have to do, they had gotten rid of all the regulations, but they decided to do it anyways. But basically we were out there week to week and eventually they just shut it down. They, they, mm-hmm. they, it was always week to week on, well, maybe, maybe we'll come back next week. Maybe we won't. We have no idea because they didn't know what would happen. But I do find there's a lot of a lot of communication that that's not told on to text. And I, I, I understand why some people do it because they're afraid if they don't have work, then people will start looking for work and leave their other project early. And I'm not sure if there's a great an answer or solution to this, but I really do wish that more employers and employees would have like a, a good conversation and say, look, guys, these are the potential projects we have. We don't know when they're going to start. They may start, they may not. There may be some t- time between. And I wish there's better communication w- where people could say like, okay, that's too much risk for me. I need to go find a different job. Um, can I give you a couple of weeks notice? And instead of the normal of like, oh, I'm not going to be back next week. I got a different job, which really angers managers. But honestly, it's what you got to do because you shouldn't – there's always that risk of you say, oh, I'm looking for another job. And then they just completely cut you off right there. I think this sort of goes back to a lot of conversations we have on this podcast is there's two conversations we have. One is how we'd like to see things. And one is a lot of advice we give on what things are to do. And of course, like the advice I'd give on – in the current situation is, yeah, always look out for number one. Do not have that conversation about how you're thinking about going to a different employer. But 
the other conversation I'd like to have, or the other thing I'd say is I wish we could have that conversation. I wish I could say you should talk to your employer and be like, yeah, you know, big risk. I need to find something a little bit more steady. Yeah. And I think there are a few places that that does happen, but in general, probably the advice is, yeah, don't, don't, don't say that because you can lose work. Indeed. Andrew. Yeah. I just like to go back to that idea that Heather was talking about of scope creep. I, I love that, that phrase. And I, I would say that if you win the proposal, one of the first things you almost want to plan for is the end of the project. You know what, like, like have that idea in your mind, like, okay, this will take about this long with these resources and it will end somewhere right around here. So we're going to utilize our resources and then have enough to just, and maybe a little cushion, but to have that end point. Cause I've seen that before people who, win a project, win a bid, whatever. And they have no idea about the end, you know? And it's like, no, you need to now know the whole story to the end. I always like to think of it as like a scuba dive where it's like, okay, I've gotten this proposal and we're going to do this. I'm going to go down for 30 minutes and then I have to come up and be prepared for that. Yeah. There's no uh, scope creep with the scuba though. Scope creep is you die. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah I, I would say a couple things, like just piggybacking off of what Andrew's saying. Well, for, first, I'm going to say something about what Doug said. Uh, he, I'm glad he said at the end that um, there are some companies that you can do that with. As soon as you identify that that is a company, because I'll say when we hire as needed, I have a conversation with that as needed employee and I tell them, listen, this is the way as needed works. And yeah, I do not want you to just rely on this company. I, I had this conversation with newer people, especially that are just entering uh, CRM said it is on you. You're as needed at this point. It is on you to find work. And I'm telling you that I encourage you to work for other companies because I, as much as I would love to have enough work for you, I have to make sure that I have enough work for a lot of people. And so I want you to, you know, actively go. In fact, you can put my name, but when it gets to a certain point, if I know that they're good at what they do and I'm willing to, you know, recommend them, I said, put my name on your resume as a, as a contact, you know, but I encourage people to do that. When you have a manager who's doing that, then you got to be straight up with that person because you want to, that's a good employer and you want to protect that relationship. That's an employer you can trust. So you don't want to be playing this game where you're going to hold things back because when you do that to a a manager who's working with you in an honest way, and then you're not working with them in an honest way, that's a real good way to negatively impact your relationship with a really good employer. And that's not what you want, right? You want to eventually get a full-time job with a good employer. So if you're kind of burning your bridges with good employers, that's not the best move. So I do think I agree with Doug. There are going to be some situations where you do need to, and you're going to have to suss that out and figure out who, who you're going to be forthright Mm -hmm. with and who you're not, but don't go across the board and not, and, and be that way across the board. I think that that, yeah, that's a mistake. And and I'm glad you mentioned that Heather too, because, you know, now I'm speaking to all the field techs out there. You have to watch out for yourself. If you are an as needed or a shovel bum or temporary field tech, whatever you want to say, I mean, you have to know that you you are the one that's responsible for your career. Don't think that even just because the company says, oh, we've got tons of work this summer, you're definitely going to have work after this. Sure, 
take that as, yeah, okay, that's great if it happens, but don't assume it's going to happen because the reality is they have several priorities. The first one is everybody on their staff and their payroll. That has to be it. That's how you run a business. If that's not their priority, they'll be out of business soon, right? So if they don't win the projects they thought they were going to win, which is what they're basing their statement to you on, is that they've put in all these proposals, they know all this work is, but they haven't won that work. You know, I mean, if they have... Great. Show me the money. <laughs> but if they haven't, you know, it's like it's promises and hopes and dreams. Right. So but keep an eye out for yourself. If you're not working for somebody that understands that you have to keep an eye out for yourself and you have to go to the projects that make sense for your life because this is how you work, then you shouldn't work for those people at all. Right. Yeah. And and conversely, if somebody offers you a job for when you're done with this project, but I hate to say it, something better or more solid comes along and you have to tell those guys, no, I can't mm-hmm. actually work on your project. Well, honestly, if they don't understand too, that's just how this business works. You know, I mean, you yeah. don't want to burn those bridges too many times and, and accept something and say no too many times. But within reason, you've got to watch out for yourself. And I'll say one more thing too to people who are permanent with companies as well. There's nothing permanent if there's no projects coming in. Right. You might be salaried. You might be full time staff. But I'll tell you what, if for some reason the work dries up, you're gone. Like they're not going to keep you and just like put you in the office. There's no money to pay for you. So unless you have another skill set, your job is only as permanent as the proposals that are coming in. (laughs) So that's it. Very true. Sorry, I'm going to jump back. We're just jumping all (laughs) over the place. Um, I was actually going to say, like, if you have your contract done right scope creep is an amazing thing that never-ending project oh absolutely that just keeps on going that keeps providing you you money i know that's not what andrew meant on scope creep because it's usually poorly where it's like no you have three days left dude you know yeah. yeah, no, usually what we're what Andrew's referring to is, is basically what happened is it's like you have a fixed contract and then they're like, oh, yeah, so you budget 30 and we just need you to do something that, you know, it's going to cost you like 60000 to do. No big deal. That sort of stuff that sucks. But yeah, I think this goes back to the uh, the project and what sort of contract and how you've got it set up. But you can end up on those sort of never-ending projects that just go on for years upon years and provide steady work. Um, after getting that first contract, um, if, you've, right. if you've got it, if you've got it done correctly, there's, if there's one thing you're gonna, you should spend money on is like a lawyer to give you some good terms and conditions and contracts if you can write it. Like again, some jobs they're basically like sign at the dotted line. You're using our contract. It's 400 pages long. You're screwed six different ways. Um, just like that third paragraph, but um, you have no choice. That happens. But yeah, if you if you can get a good a good never ending project, those things can be really wonderful. Right, but I, I think we're just talking on the two sides of professionalism. Yeah, you know, if you're if you're professional, then yeah, that can happen. And there there are certain projects that have a reason to go on, but then there's others that have every reason to end, and then the person is just like not professional and is making you know <laughs> foolish decisions. I think for me, where Scope Creek comes in the most is when you have a client who needs some hand holding. Or some things happen, let's say you find a resource and now you have to address that resource. That's actually the easiest scope creep and the most beneficial scope creep to us as professionals because it is, like Doug says, it's an, uh, it, it extends your project and the money that comes in. But the scope creep is when you have a client who is very needy and they they want some extra hand-holding or you have an agency that's really trying to put the screws to your client and 
Now you're having to step in and be an advocate for your client. That happens a lot because your client doesn't know the business and they don't know if they're getting screwed by the agency or not. And so, you know, your job as a professional is to advocate for your client. And so that's where the scope creep can come in. And that's where you have to have those conversations, but mostly your clients typically are professional people. They understand that these things happen and you're looking out for them and that it does cost more money in order for you to be able to, you know, help them in these different ways. But I think the one thing that I would like to say also to those that work in the field is that when you're, when you're, a project manager tells you that, you know, sometimes you're going to be out there and you're going to be doing a survey, let's say, and you find a resource and your project manager, your field supervisor has told you that this is the way the project is going to go. You're not going to record anything. You're going to take a point and move on. There's a reason behind that because that is not included in recording a site is not included maybe in your, in the proposal. And then that is going to, occur later. I see sometimes on social media where people say, oh, well, people are, you know, they're not being responsible. They're not recording the resource. And that's not what's going on. Like, don't assume the worst. What's happening is, is that you're having a survey, you take a point, and then you come back later when you can put together another contract amendment in order to deal with the resources that were found that you didn't expect. So, you know, that it's important Mm -hmm. that those that are in the field understand that the direction you're being given are being given because the contract has specific expectations, right? Doug? Yeah, I would say uh, my my primary experience with uh, scope creep actually tends to be from other archaeologists who actually wish they were running the project. Mm-hmm. Um, you get this a lot of times where obviously the archaeologist uh, who is on the other side of the project many times they want it to be run in a certain way and they're not, that's actually not their job. And yeah, that, that's where I see the most creep coming in. Right. I just have one kind of quick question too, for like, you know, Heather and, and the rest of you guys, you, you know, the proposal is so important and you can justify things using the proposal. Is it possible to give a copy of the proposal to the crew or is that like too odd? Well, some, so that's a really good point. Sometimes I will either, give the proposal. Our team knows exactly where the proposals are. So I encourage them to look at a proposal. So only time that you wouldn't do that, there's sometimes you have conditions you're not, you can't do that, right? You have some confidentiality. Yeah. For the most part, I do give the proposals mm-hmm. to the to the crew, at least the crew supervisors, right? So they have an idea of why we're doing what we're doing. I think they have buy-in a lot yeah. easier that way. And if the other option is to write a a work plan. And it's very easy to to extract. If you write a proposal correctly, it's easy to extract a work plan from your proposal. And so if you're not going to get the proposal, you can at least give a work plan. And that definitely allows people to to have buy-in, you know, when you're just like working out order without any understanding behind it, that's not fair. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. And I think it kind of wraps up with what like, you know, Doug, Doug was saying earlier with you'll have these sort of almost bullying archaeologists who want this certain thing. And you can go to them and be like, in the proposal, it says this and this is what we're doing. So stop it, you know, and and that can be a really powerful ally, your own proposal. Yep. Agreed. Or it could piss them off more. (laughs) Well, yeah. So what? It's a business, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. It, it's the legal bit. Um, but yeah, sometimes you have to, sometimes you have to 
walk that thin that uh, thin red line of um, yeah, because uh, technically no, we have somebody like they will be your client. And sorry, Heather, mm-hmm. you said I just said if we ha- if I have somebody like that and they're not they're not following you know the work plan that might be their last project. Like yeah. I don't care how good they are. If you're not working for us, you're working for us as a company. If you're not, if you don't have that attitude, I'm sorry, I can't have you on the project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is an excellent point. I mean, if you're not following the rules, if you're not playing ball with the company and how that company operates, then, you know, you find another company to work for or they'll find another field tech to work for them. You know, I mean, that's just right. that's just how that goes. There has to be a synergy there. So but yeah. I'll end this with. I'm just very glad that the the concept of a work plan came up because a proposal can easily develop into a work plan because a lot of the things you're going to do in the work plan are in the proposal. And just like proposals and reports, you, you probably have and you should if you do these all the time and every project should have a work plan. You should have a template for that, you know, because the work plan contains not only the elements of the proposal that say, here's what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it. But here's the, uh, you know, emergency evacuation routes. Here's the nearest hospitals. Here's the, you know, all the other stuff that you need in a work plan for your health and safety stuff for, you know, the whole thing. That is the the Bible for the project. And every crew should have a copy of the work plan available to them, either either digitally offline or, you know, as a PDF or something like that, because mm-hmm. it's got that crucial information in it. So. Anyway, we could continue on this for a really long time, probably, because <laughs> there's always something to say about this. But I'm interested in hearing everybody else's thoughts. Hit us up on Facebook if you saw this. Again, I, I am one of the admins of the Archeo Field Text group and, you know, the hosts of this podcast. Most of them are also in the Archeo Field Text group. And that's kind of the biggest group that we have on Facebook to talk about and share, you know, uh, field related experiences. We can't really share this episode there. So if you're listening to this and you're over there, it's a little self-serving to do that. And I understand that. But if you liked if you like this episode, please help us out and share it over there so it can generate these conversations. Sometimes I just will if I think, man, this really needs to get out. And I'll just, you know, suffer the consequences of somebody saying me, look at you, you're self-promoting yourself in your own group. But anyway, <laughs> I don't care. It's good stuff, right? So it, help us out and, and maybe share it out. It's, it's I, not like we get paid for this, Chris. I mean, we're doing this because we don't do wait, this wait, so we can what? sit in a room. <laughs> yeah, you're not getting oh, paid. No. I get it. I get it. Anyway, thanks a lot, guys. This has been a great two-episode series. Uh, I hope we can do some more uh, little mini-series like this. And with that, we'll see you guys in two weeks with whatever Andrew wants to talk about. Back then. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. 
Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we'll see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye, everybody. See you guys next time. Yeah, I'm going to take that as a win. Their pause was a win right there. I, I have nothing else to say. That's that, that's me done. They've taken my job from me, Chris. You know, I cut those out. Contracts. Right. Man, I need to go. We need to go back to that contract <laughs> we have. All right. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.